What up? This is Dart Adams, and this is episode 55 of Dart Against Humanity. Uh, I got a lot of great feedback, and a lot of people were really loving the last episode of Dart Against Humanity, where I talked about music supervision and um, film and television. Uh, I ran nowhere near as long as I thought I would, but I thought in my head that I was running long, so I left out a few shows that I think really should have been mentioned that I think have excellent um, music supervision. Uh, those being, of course, Mr. Robot, um, Legion, which really should have been obvious. Um, She's Gotta Have It, which is on Netflix. Uh, one of the episodes of She's Gotta Have It, they actually played a song by um, Cree Summer from my album Street Fairy, which I hadn't heard in years. I'm so, that was great. Uh, Friday Night Lights. Uh, and one episode, I remember they played... Uh, a version of Daniel Johnston's Devil Town for like the finale of the first season after they won the state championship. And I was like, yo, that's bananas. Westworld, how the hell did I leave out Westworld? Halt and Catch Fire, which had amazing um, music supervision and also one of the most slept on shows ever. Um, Snowfall, what the fuck was I thinking? How did I leave off Snowfall? Okay. So now that I've got that out of the way, I wanted to get into a completely different subject that I can't believe that it's been 55 episodes and I haven't really gone deep into it. It's time. Uh, I have six episodes left before the season is over. Final episode of the season will be um, August 16th, uh, 2019, which is the day before my 44th birthday. I figured that if I'm going to do this show to the best of my ability, I have to do subjects that I know inside and out like the back of my hand that are near and dear to me that I can research thoroughly and I can just deliver and it's not just me ranting into a phone there's not a lot of uh 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 and shit like that going on so this particular subject near and dear to my heart again um it's about role playing games why did I pick this subject a lot of you saw Stranger Things 3 and you've noticed that a running theme is that the kids from Stranger Things 3, that group of kids always plays D&D in a basement together. The idea of playing D&D or any role playing game is conjured as this really nerdy thing that only people with no social cues or uh, people who don't have uh, great like social skills play uh, so I just want to let y'all in on something remember that time I told you about uh, ghostwriters and how there's this trick that with ghostwriters where they're like they slip in references to themselves and stuff like that well here's a little trick that you need to learn about uh, film writing screenwriting television writing what have you typically writers pull from their personal experiences and when it's a shared experience and you see it a lot, that means that there's a reason. The reason is that role-playing games are usually an entry point for a lot of writers and directors. Especially people that write, produce, storyboard, anything from film, television, even the gaming industry. Because it's pretty much the same thing. And I don't know if anyone's told you this before, but if you're in the realm of comic books, chances are you've, you've been in this space too. Because everybody seems to share or be in the same group where they've had the same shared experiences or influences. Uh, 
pretty much what we all did was uh, grew up. I love sports and everything else. I used to be in um, the talent shows, all the other shit. Used to dance, b-boy, all that. But I also played role-playing games, played uh, arcade games, played uh, PC games, uh, home console games later, read comic books, watched cartoons and anime, loved books, graphic novels, all that. And all this shit... All this is usually an entry point or a gateway drug to becoming someone in a creative field such as film, television, comic books, art, music. It all ties in together. So my entry to role-playing games came early on around like, again, my older brother six years older than me. So... He went to Boston Latin School. His friends played D&D. D&D was the first role-playing game I ever played. I believe it was 1983. I was eight. My younger brother was five because we all played together. And 1984, there was a cartoon that came on TV called Dungeons & Dragons. Made it less um, goofy and weird and nerdy because there was a cartoon about it that came on Saturday mornings. The shit looked cool. Even though uh, a lot of them motherfucking character classes didn't exist. You couldn't be a motherfucking acrobat. You couldn't be a cavalier. So, what the hell? Anyway, so motherfuckers would pick up and get, hey, I want to play d and I want to be an acrobat. You can't be an acrobat. Then why is it in the cartoon? Motherfuckers be taking liberties and licenses, man. Um, so, one day, my younger brother and I, again, in my family, my brothers and sisters went to Boston Latin School, oldest school in America, prestigious school. The reason why Harvard College was made was to send people who graduated from Boston Latin School in 1636. All right, wrap your head around that. My cousins uh, went to a school called Buckingham, Brown and Nichols. Which was another prestigious school, but it was in like Cambridge. We were in Boston and Roxbury area. And if you called it Roxbury, they lost their shit. And they were in Cambridge. So we went to Boston Latin School eventually, once I got through advanced classes or whatever. And then they went to Buckingham, Brown and Nichols. One day we went to a Buckingham, Brown and Nichols fair because they used to bring us to the fair. One day I went in and this kid was selling an entry, like the, the first blue book game for D&D. The beginner set. Sold it for $250. I happened to have $5 on me. I bought it. It was 1984. Me and my younger brother started playing D&D. So, here's the thing that you don't realize about D&D. Yeah, it's supposed to be nerdy and all this other shit. And it's corny and it's uh, you fighting dragons and shit. Let me explain something to you. There's so much involved with playing a role-playing game. In playing a game with kids that are your own age, people in your own peer group. Are you aware that kids have terrible attention spans? That they're easily bored? That they live to crack on each other? Waiting for there to be a hole or a chink in the armor or any weakness so they can leap, pounce and expose it? One of those kids has to choose to be the dungeon master or in other role playing games, the GM. Do you understand what an undertaking that is? 
So basically what you're doing is like what Will did in um, Stranger Things. You have to come up. It's, t- you're, it's on you. You're tasked with coming up with the campaign. Typically, when you come up with the campaign, you have to do two things. You have to you have to think ahead. You have to come up with contingency plans. You have to draw maps. You have to create the rising action. It's a lot of fucking work. You have to be able to keep people in engrossed. You have to make sure that no one gets bored. You have to make sure nobody checks out because if one person checks out and one person thinks it's boring, it's going to permeate through everybody else who's who's around the table. And usually you're playing with like three other people, maybe five, six other people. Sometimes people show up and you throw them into the game. So you have to plan for that eventuality. So you have to have fail safe upon self fail safe. And what you also have to do is you have to make sure that you know the people in your party, the people that you were trying to entertain. You have to know what's going to What's going to entice them? You have to know what's going to make them excited. You have to know what's going to make them be like, yo, that was a dope wrinkle. You have to do all this. You have to plan ahead. And then the other thing is that you have to make sure that you put yourself in a position where you're not going to be put in a corner where somebody's like, yo, why did this happen? Why did you do this? This was stupid. This doesn't make sense. You have to be so far ahead of the game when you're a dungeon master. And here's another thing. You're narrating. You're telling the story. One of the most daunting things to do with most people is public speaking. The fear of public speaking is so serious. Uh, I went to Morgan State in 1996. Uh, Freshman year, I was a 20-year-old freshman. I voluntarily took this class called speech. Speech was a class that always had seats open. No one wanted to take speech. I heard there's something like 90 to 95 percent of the entire um, student body takes speech last, as in the last semester that they're at college, because it's that scary of a class. That's how much people fear it. These are the people that are tasked with telling the story, keeping the pace, and typically the people that are the dungeon masters or the GMs are the people that end up becoming writers, directors, and what have you, because they have to have experience in entertaining. And again, you have to know the people at your table. You have to uh, plan for the people that aren't. So you have your core audience. And then you have to plan for people that may just show up. Imagine that. And then again, you have to make sure that you don't do anything or have anything in your plans or in your in your campaign. It's going to make people go. That shit doesn't make sense. That's stupid. Or you should have done this differently. Even when you have a good campaign, you kind of want feedback from people because you want to be able to top the last thing you did. And that's what drives you. Right. So, I of course started with D and D. Uh, kind of grew out of D and D because again, you have to understand that got into D and D eighty three, eighty four by eighty five, eighty six. It's the crack era. I'm turning. I'm ten. I'm eleven. I don't. I'm sick of fucking magic missiles and and portals and orcs and hobgoblins. I'm sick of that shit. My older brother went out and he tried some other TSR games. So there was this other game called Star Frontiers. It was like the space game. That shit was trash. 
we were like, nah. We're just at the table like, fam, we can't play this. So we keep looking. So it's like um, once you start doing drugs, I guess, and you start experimenting. So there were other uh, games that people tried. There was uh, this game called Top Secret the TSR had. There was like the spy game. Didn't like that shit at all. Later in 1987, it rebranded itself as Top Secret SI. And still wasn't wasn't hitting. There was this game, role-playing game called system called GURPS. G-U-R-P-S. No. Then there was this game called Champions. It was a role-playing game that basically used superheroes. And it followed superhero tropes from comic books. So that's something we could get behind. Because we're kids who grew up watching, you know, all the uh, DC cartoons and also the new Marvel ones. You know, Spider-Man, um, Spider-Man is an amazing friends, the Hulk, what have you with all the Marvel heroes. So these are independent heroes, ones that you make up for yourself. And it, of course, follows tropes. It gives you skills and disadvantages, just like comic books. So he's like, yo, it's something that you could just do yourself. But at some point. Depending on your age, you don't want to have to do all that labor and all that work. So my brother saw that, and with my, my younger brother and I, and he went out and he bought this TSR um, new campaign book. It was called uh, Marvel Superheroes. So basically what it was, was it was the entire Marvel Universe, but reimagined in a role-playing playing game with a system. We played this shit for about over two years between like maybe 84 85 into maybe 87 possibly so we rocked with this game for a while and it it gave us a baseline of characters that we knew and loved and then gave you the ability to make your own so it was pretty much like a between that and champions, it was like, yo, if you're going to write comic books or be a creator or end up working for Marvel, DC or any other independent company, this right here is giving you the blueprint. You're understanding the game right here between these two between these, these two role playing game and systems. It was just giving you the card. Like if you read enough X-Men and Avengers and Fantastic Four and Defenders, Daredevil, Moon Knight. I'm just naming people. Fucking um, Ghost Rider, whatever. It's like you have an idea, a good mix of you've read Batman on DC, you're reading the Teen Titans, X-Men, New Mutants, and... Basically, between those two game systems, between um, Champions and between Marvel Superheroes, it gives you a wealth of like different powers, different power sets, advantages, ideas, uh, bat, uh, damage systems, uh, how, to, how to figure out how to do hits. And the thing is, the different battle systems, sometimes they're clunky, sometimes they work. And if you have enough experience, if you've played enough role-playing games, you get an idea that, yo... Um, this doesn't work. This doesn't work. This is goofy. This shit is nonsensical. It would work better if we did this, 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 and this. So already the wheels are turning in your head. That, Yo, there has to be a better system out there. And it turns out, eventually there was a better system out there.
there was a company called Palladium Books. I'm sure some of you have never heard of Palladium Books before. Actually, I'm sure most of you have never heard of Palladium Books before. Champions was made by this company called um called Hero. So it was Hero Games, and they had this thing called like the Hero System. That was their that was their system. That was their base for all the games that they did. Now, where Palladium did it different was Palladium had like this universal system that worked for different genres of role-playing games. Their first game system was some shit that I was never going to play. The Mechanoid Invasion, yawn. Um, Then they had Heroes Unlimited. And people were looking at that. They're looking at GURPS. They're looking at Champions. They're looking at the Marvel game. They're looking at Heroes Unlimited. And they're like, they might be on to something. So what happened is uh, later on, a lot of you don't know this because Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles didn't get popular until like 87, 88 when the cartoon happened. In New England and Boston area and the colleges and universities, what have you, in the underground, the art scene, uh, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles started its first printing in 1984. So between 1984 and 1986... It's gaining more and more and more of an audience within New England. All right. So a lot of people like to claim that like unless you were between 18 and 25 in 1984, please don't come up saying that you were fucking on Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles early because you're bullshit. It's bullshit. I didn't see a fucking Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle book until like late 85, 86. And I was right there in the comic book stores as was happening. But I was only 10 or 11. Anyways. What happens is in 1985, Palladium creates the uh, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles game. It's Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles and Other Strangeness. That's what they called it. The game worked pretty well. Uh, This dude, Kevin Sambita, he did the the art. The books were dope. Palladium books, just like you would just like go to. There was a place down the street from me on Mass Ave when I was uh, growing up. was a role-playing game store called The Complete Strategist. My brothers and I spent hella time in there, would walk by, go in, look at the books and everything else. And the books that really stood out were um, Palladiums. Well, Palladium made Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles book, but then they came out with a book in 1986 that changed the game. Um, They came out with the Robotech role-playing game. Robotech was probably hands down my favorite and a lot of people's favorite anime because it also had these ill toys. They came along with it, and their toys also had like a Ravel um, partnership, so they had models. All the mecha was bananas. So they had the role-playing game for Robotech. The system for Robotech, the damage, the fighting, just the characters that they had, the options that they gave you as a creator and as a DM or GM were crazy. Where it just made you like, yo, this is the way everything should be. And um, so Palladium was ahead of the game because they had some this ill idea of how to how the flow should be, how to how how the game should play out, how the mechanics are. And the thing is that their system worked for so many different genres. And they were ahead of the game there. So a lot of people called them called it Megaversal, where you could play... Okay, so they had different games. They had um, 
Robotech, they had Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. They had this other shit called Ninjas and Super Spies, which was crazy. Um, they had this other game that was Riffs. Riffs, it was so creative that every single game that you picked up and played, you could see as a film or a series. And that made you, as a, someone who played it, be like, yo... It made you more creative and made you more aware of what was going on. So past a certain year, my brother and I were like getting up there. You know, comic books come back. It's the comic book explosion again. Marvel blows up between 1990 and 1991. So we're not satisfied with playing fucking role playing games that already exist. We're old enough now. We've been in this game since 1984 through 1990, like, yo, we could come up with our own game. So what we did was, back in 1989, I remember someone gave me a role-playing game called Batman. It had some shit in there I liked, but it also had some other things like Batman doesn't kill. So it eliminated your ability to kill. I was like, that shit got to go. So I did a right. I did a workaround and I made it so that you could kill people. I eliminated all the stupid characters that they had and I would take characters that I made. So I, uh, I completely redid the system and I changed the game from Batman to a new game called Battletech that me and my boys used to play. Now, can you imagine how ill a role playing game has to be to get hardcore just like thugs like dudes in hoodies and shit to play a role playing game in the early 90s be like eight dudes at the crib like yo I got my character his name is this and this and this he's this this he has these weapons he has size he's a sword because again everybody is reading all the like Marvel books coming out with Deadpool and and Wildstorm and Image and all that shit so they're coming up with their own ideas and their takes from catch, as Catch from the Hood would do. And then also you have to remember that this is also the era where a milestone pops up. So they, so now it's a new frame of reference for these dudes, whereas 1984, 85, 86, this is corny. This is goofy. But when you come up playing video games and watching cartoons and seeing anime like um, Crying Freeman or, you know, Ninja Scroll or, or Bow or all this other shit. Um, Legend of Kamui, your com- perspective is completely different. You've seen Akira, so now you know cats want to c- create a character that could like do psionic stuff, even though they grew up with like the X Men and Professor X. It didn't really hit them how much shit you could do until they see an anime with a dude making people splatter with their minds. So we come up with our own game. We do Battletech. And then my brother and I came up with another game called Exus. That was the last game we came up with. And then from there, it was just like, my brother was like, yo, what's this? And we told him about the game idea that we had. He was like, yo, y'all need to just start thinking about writing scripts and screenplays and trying to develop stuff. And was like, and you know games, video games, they have people that come up with the game ideas. Like, y'all should get into that. And that's something we never thought of. The comic book idea was always something that was in the back of my mind. I didn't know that it was like something that was actually attainable until it hit me that what we were doing was setting us up for the possibility of being in that space because of all of our shared experiences and all this other stuff. 
it's bananas. So like, I think about that stretch of years between like 1983 and maybe like 92, and how most people grew up on, um, of course, the big two, Marvel and DC, who owned the uh, majority of the uh, comic book companies. I mean, or like the smaller companies, or if you were a creator, you worked in an indie and you tried to work your way up, just like in wrestling, if you're a Russell, Russell indie or whatever, you try to get to a major. If you're an independent rapper, you try to work your way up to an indie. Well, there was a time, just like when fucking WWF got corny, not E, WWF got corny, and people were like, I'm going to go over to here to NWA. Not WCW, NWA. Then it was WCW. We ain't fucking with AWA, really. And then all of a sudden, you're like, nah, I'm not fucking with that either. Where now, you're looking at like, yo, um, we gotta just come up with our own thing. And this is how backyard wrestling and all this stuff happened. Well, being young, when Marvel and DC kind of lost their way, we got into independent comic book companies. So a few of them include like First Comics. First had uh, books like Dreadstar. Dreadstar was actually originally on Epic. Epic was with Marvel as their imprint. Uh, they had books like Howard Chaikin's American Flag, Badger, Nexus, Grimjack, which I'm surprised nobody's adapted yet. John Sable, Freelance, which actually was adopted. Adapted, I mean, not adopted. It's not a kid. Lone Wolf and Cub, which ran for quite a while, I think at the end of first. Um, the Max, uh, he debuted on Comico later. And then like there was a book called E-Man. E-Man started on first and then moved to Comico. So Comico was another company I fucked with. Uh, they had uh, this dude, Matt Wagner. So Matt Wagner had uh, two books. He had Mage the Hero Discovered and he had Grendel. Uh, then they also did books for Robotech, Johnny Quest. Um, again, I said that they had E-Man. They were the company that first had Sam and Max. So the cartoon, the video game, Sam and Max, they were the first company to really um, do Sam and Max. That was Comico. Another company was Eclipse. I think they, they went under in 93. So Comico went under in 90, I feel. They they went under in 90. I didn't pay much attention to them. I Supposedly, they ran into the late 90s, but I don't remember anything they did past 90. First Comics uh, went defunct in 91. So Eclipse ran in 93. I knew them because they were the first company other than um, Epic, who picked up Akira in 88, to do Japanese books. So they did Appleseed, big Area 88. Area 88 was also big because it was um, UN Squadron, the video game. A lot of people didn't realize it was actually just Area 88. Uh, they did a game RPG comic book, Champions by Hero Games. They actually did a comic book for them, which was weird. They did a um, book for Dirty Pair, Kamui, which later ended up going to Viz, which I'm getting to. My the Psychic Girl was the big book for Eclipse. They did Miracle Man. I ain't fuck with Miracle Man. And then they, they came up with this idea. They were going to do a bi-weekly comic book that cost $2.95 an issue called Xenon, the Metal Warrior. 
Uh, my brother, I, and our boy Kai bought like the first four or five issues, and then we were like, we're going broke, and we we gotta buy like um games. Ain't no fucking way we're gonna be buying tapes and games and buying a comic book every two weeks that cost three dollars. Are you out your goddamn mind? So anyway, um, there was Viz. Viz began running in 1987. Uh, the first books we got from there were like a Fist of the North Star, uh, Fist of the North Star, Gray, Bow. Bow doesn't have a series that has like a 50-minute animated uh, movie, an OAV that you can actually see now on like YouTube anytime. B-A-O-H. Legend of Kamui, which is before the Legend of Kamui anime, which was called Revenge of the Ninja Warrior. And it was heavily edited in America. Still pissed off about that. Gray. Gray is probably one of the greatest graphic novels I ever saw. Uh, saw a book. It ran eight issues. The graphic novel issues. The graphic novel version is dope. Black and white. Bananas. Ill story. I want to adapt one day into a film. Crazy thing about it is that um, it had a movie that you had to buy direct from Viz that cost $89.95 called Gray Digital Target. It was trash. You could probably find great digital target on YouTube. Watch that shit. If, even if you ain't seen like, yo, this shit's boring. Um, so then um, after that, there was Eternity. Eternity ran until 1994. They did books for Captain Harlock. They did this book called Dinosaurs for Hire, which really should have taken off. The art was ill. It was an interesting idea. Lensman, which is an adaptation of um, an old sci-fi book which became an anime later Lindsman. Robotech and Robotech 2 the Sentinels they did they got the license and did those adaptations they did these other two books called Ninja High School and Yakuza which were kind of fire uh I like the art style there was this Canadian um imprint of Eternity of Eternity it was also a, a subsidiary of Malibu comic books called Air Cell Air Cell went under in 94 First time I got into Air Cell was um my brother's roommates were these two was was this dude named Cedric and his boy Trent. They used to read the shit out of this book. It was black and white comic book called Stark Future. I used to read their books. I was like, yo, this shit is ill. This could be like a movie or a series. Then of course, like, it just stopped. They had books like Gun Fury, Samurai. They're the company that first printed Men in Black. It was called The Men in Black. It was like a, 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 a sort of hit for them, and it kept them afloat for a while before the company finally just went under. So that's where Men in Black started with Air Cell. Then Malibu. Malibu had this shit called the Ultraverse. They eventually got bought by Marvel. So they had um, Hero, they had this book called Exiles, there's a book called X Mutants, Nightman. And of course, the whole series, the whole group was like their version of the Avengers was like Ultra Force. And Marvel eventually bought them, I think, in 94. And then they started doing these crossover books. And I ain't fuck with any of those. So, it's whatever. For me, the big shit was um, Tony Wong. Uh, Yuck Long Wong. Uh, Wong Yuck Long. Uh, he brought over translated books that were huge in Japan. I mean, in China. So, I grew up, of course, um, South End, Laurel Roxbury, next to Chinatown. And it was a mix of kids that I went to school with. I went to school with mostly Latino kids who lived in my neighborhood in Via Victoria. Um, the 
black and Latino kids that grew up in my area in the south end, Lower Roxbury. And then, you know, Chinese kids pretty much that grew up in nearby Chinatown. We all went to the same schools. So go to the Prince School, it's all of us. And we actually had some white kids sprinkled in. First grade to Blackstone, we have some white kids sprinkled in. Second grade to Blackstone, got some white kids sprinkled in. Then we start getting kids like Bustin from um, Southie and Dorchester and what have you, right? Third grade, more kid, white kids bust in. We start to see less white kids. Fourth grade, I'm in fourth advanced. Now I see some white kids. But in the rest of the school, very few white kids. All, most of the white kids that came in came in from, from either Southie or Charlestown now. Southie and Charlestown, fourth grade. Fifth grade, white kids from Southie and Charlestown. The white kids that are from the neighborhood or whatever, they're not going to the, to the local school anymore. So my fourth and fifth grade years were spent at, the, Char- at the, um, the Josiah Quincy School, which is in Chinatown. It's a community school. This is when I was exposed to Jade McCombe books for the first time. 64 pages went the opposite direction. A lot of action, a lot of lines, a lot of blood, a lot of kung fu. I'd be like, yo, what's going on in these books? So kids would like try to translate. And then later on, they didn't want to translate because kids hated going to Chinese school because it was just torture. And the last thing they wanted to do was translate for my ass because they didn't even want to translate. You know, shit was just their parents were forcing them to do it. I didn't understand that. And this is a time, this is now, nowadays, like Mandarin is more the thing. But back then it was really Cantonese. Everything was Canto. Everybody's speaking Cantonese. So um, I first get introduced to Jademan comics in Chinese. So we would buy the Jademan book in full color, cover, full color, 64 pages, just have them in Chinese. In 19, summer 1988, what happens is he starts translating the books. So we start buying them. Uh, the titles they had were the first run joints. They had four of them. It was Oriental Heroes. Yeah, I know. It should have been called Dragon Tiger Gate. Oriental Heroes, Drunken Fist, Force of Buddha's Palm, The Blood Sword. Those four titles would get anybody to buy them. Then later on, they added um, Blood Sword Dynasty, which was a continuation of the Blood Sword story. This dude named Hero. These books had like were famous Chinese stories and had films and shit like that. Famous legends. Iron Marshal, which was fire. And um, they ran from like 1988 to 93, I think. All the books ended around number 60 because um, they just couldn't keep producing in America. They were losing money. And um, in 1988, they decided to, uh, to expand to America. And that's when the indie comics bubble burst. So locally, we had um, New England comics. So what happens is when I was talking to you early about Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles... Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles blew up locally in New England. And one of the biggest pushes, because they were selling like, they were selling it like two shorts sold as rap tapes, you know, like out the trunk. They would go to like, um, and this is back in the days when comic conventions were not like they are now or even like they were in the 90s. It was a really niche audience. They would print up a few hundred books and sell them, and it would take them a while to sell them out, and then they sell them out. Then they'd take them a while to do another printing. New England Comics stepped in and helped them push Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. What they also did was um, there was a kid that used to really love New England Comics, and he came up with a mascot for their newsletters called The Tick. Then one day, 
he decides, yo, I'm going to write like a three page, um, I mean, a three page uh, comic strip with the tick in it. And it goes, it blows up. Everybody's like wants that newsletter. So then NEC just looks at homie and says, yo, we just want, we need to just print comic books, man. We just need to print a book. So they do the first issue of the tick. It sells out. They do another printing. It sells out. Another printing. It sells out. So now the tick is a legitimate comic book. So issue two, issue three, issue four, they start developing characters and, and this weird array of villains and stuff like that. Then later on, the tick ends up getting picked up. It has, um, just like Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles got picked up, uh, they had licensing, they had toys, they had the cartoon. So those are two things that blew up in New England and Boston and then went everywhere that people don't realize we had first. The Tick and Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. New England Comics helped push that. Um, Fantagraphics. Fantagraphics used to do these really weird books. They're like the artsy white kids used to really get into but the first book that i saw brown people actually fuck with was love and rockets and cute gothy art girls were into loving rockets so i was like yo what's that what what, what, what that is where's palomar that's crazy who these people so i got into that of course through girls women duh then the first book I saw that made me go, oh shit, that's kind of fire. Usagi Yojimbo, who later ended up in Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles cartoons. Usagi Yojimbo first came up in Fantagraphics books. I didn't fuck with anything else Fantagraphics had. There was another comic book company called Valiant. Valiant had a whole lot of interesting books. They had a resurgence uh, not too long ago. And I was like fucking with their books then. So I can't run down the list of Valiant books because it's a lot. There was Now. Now ran back in like, it started running in like 86, 87. They were popular because what they did was um, when Speed Racer got hot again in the late 80s, they started doing the uh, Speed Racer comic books. Then they did Racer X. And then the Terminator blew up after Terminator 2 came out. They started doing a Terminator comic book. Then they did Astro Boy after he blew back up in the 80s. And then the Green Hornet after like all that whole nostalgia wave came up. So they were like making money. There was one book that was really popular. It was a niche book that people fucked with called Xena, uh, Xenozoic Tales, which later became the cartoon Cadillacs and Dinosaurs, which also became a video game. But Kitchen Sink Press did um, Xenozoic Tales between 1987 and 96. Um, I don't think that many people were really fucking with it in 87. Like, it really blew up, like, right around 89. Right around 89. Um, but I think the reason it blew up right around 89 is because at the same time, people started getting into, um, like, other shit. Like, um, this company called Caliber. Only people, only, only reason anybody knew Caliber is because that's, they used to print uh, the Crow. So between 89 and 90, that's when the Crow first picked uh, came out and started coming out and people started uh picking it up whatever it got kind of popular amongst like the the niche comic book art kids who were like reading graphic novels and stuff like that and like um i think they did the spirit too the will will eisner spirit i think kitchen sink actually um did the will eisner spirit joints 
But like that whole run really got us in the mindset. We started seeing all the creators and all the writers that were making their names doing these indie books. And later they were getting signed and picking up uh, well-known properties with Marvel and their subsidiaries and their imprints with DC and their subsidiaries and imprints. And then later, of course, you know, when um, Image and Wildstorm happened and Milestone happened, then we were like, yo, this is something that's actually attainable. This is possible. This is something you could look at. You could have your parents or people's. Hey, there are people actually making it doing this. This isn't a pipe dream. It wasn't until later where people understood that same thing because, of course, there was a comic. There was an explosion, so people were buying millions of copies of comic books. So people accepted it. Oh, this is viable. It wasn't until years later where people really understood that with video games. Because again, people didn't understand fully that, yo, people write and direct and create these video games. So the reason why I just went through this whole history of uh, role playing games and all this other stuff is because this was an entry point for a lot of people to learn how to tell stories, how to entertain people, and how to world build from getting hands-on experience from a young age and then honing those skills as they got older with different audiences that grew and got more mature and more sophisticated with more sophisticated tastes. And they started to, uh, through trial and error, they realized what they were good at, what they weren't good at. where their talents really lied, uh, if they were versatile or not, if they should stick to their stick to the um, stick to their lane or whatever. This was a crucial uh, moment in time for me to understand a lot of things about myself and what I can do writing wise. Now, most of you know me as somebody who writes about like history. And music and culture. I also write about sport. I also write about art. I also write about video games. The reason why I have this wealth of knowledge and this breadth of knowledge, and I, because I'm passionate about it, but also is because of the versatility I learned and the ability that I learned and honed while being in this space as a as a as a younger person. Every lesson that I learned, every person that I played role-playing games with or DM'd or GM'd for every group, every type. Of individual. That I actually came across in this space it helped me because I learned the value 
of how to be versatile. I learned how to entertain different people. I learned how to work on the fly. instance right now I just realized all right so I just realized that I had my case on for my um for my phone wrong I had it on the wrong side. So suddenly when I'm holding my phone and I'm talking into it, uh, the sound's going down. I'm trying to figure out how's the sound going down because I'm not touching the side until I realize, yo, dumbass, you put the phone, you put the phone cover on the wrong way. So to charge my phone, I took my phone cover off and I put it on backwards and I was trying to figure out why the sound was going down. So yeah, I did learn how to figure out what was going on on the fly and think fast on my feet and adapt to situations. And that whole situation, I was able to weather while figuring out what was going on by being somebody who was young and playing role-playing games and trying not to do everything that I saw somebody else do and try to put a different wrinkle in it. So the other part of it is that I haven't mentioned yet is that when you're in genre, you want to put yourself or inject yourself or your experiences into what you do, right? So I, my games, my campaigns, my characters, their voice was not going to be the same as Jesse or Bradley Or John down the street. Because I lived in the South End, Lower Roxbury. Which was the bottom bitch of the uh, the crack game. During the crack era. Which was gang infested. So I had to do different things. I, had, I gravitated more to stuff like um, Punisher's War Journal. Uh, when Nomad switched over in the late 80s and early 90s. Um, the Marvel Knights era, you know, Daredevil, um, Spider-Man. Uh, when X-Men and X-Force came out. I'm talking the era of pouches, mad pouches and, and, and guns and cable and Deadpool, and GW Bridge, and all that. But I also like to do a lot of street-level stuff. So I gravitated to, like, the street-level gritty shit that, like, Marvel did with um the Netflix shows. That was my niche. 
And that's what I really did a lot of with um, my gaming. That's why I came up with the games I came up with. That's why I used the style that I used. And a lot of people enjoyed it. When you're listening to like underground rap in the early 90s, it's going to show up in what you do and what you create and the art that you make. And I was really inspired by, you know, cats like, again, Milestone. When you read Blood Syndicate, you knew that nobody at Marvel and DC was going to make that. Nobody was going to come up with the idea of Icon, but the people, or Static Shock, but the people there. And also, during this era, this is when, like, um... A big book that nobody talks about that really was super inspiring uh, for me in the early 90s that Marvel really turned the corner on, like along with the shit that they did for like X-Force and the new X-Men and Spider-Man. They did this new book called, I'm going to leave off here too, this new book called New Warriors. And New Warriors was led by a dude named Dwayne Taylor, a.k.a. Night Thrasher, a black dude with a skateboard who was like basically bat, black Batman. He was T'Challa, but American. And his girlfriend was a girl named uh, Silhouette, who was um, disabled. She was paralyzed, but she fought with like canes. You know what I'm saying? Like, is bananas. Then her brother was this dude named Midnight's Fire. So I came up through, through, through that whole era. And when I'm seeing these different characters and their depictions and how versatile they are, it gave me the impetus to be like, yo, I could do something like that when I write or when I create or whatever. And one day, I'm actually going to get there. And the base... Is from all the things that I just told you about. And the thing is that I have common ground with a whole generation of people and generations of people because of my experiences and my background and my knowledge doing all this. And when I finally get the opportunity to be able to write and get the opportunity to create a background or compelling characters and storylines and do world building on my own. This is why, because I've had so much experience and practice doing it since 1984. So that's all I got to say, man. Um, next week, it's going to be something else that I'm super passionate about. And I'm just going to rock like this until episode 60. And episode 60 I already planned. Oh, other thing. Um. Yesterday, on OK Player, I did a piece about the uh, public enemies fight the power, the untold story about how well fight the power was blowing up and Spike Lee's film Do the Right Thing was blowing up. Uh, a lot of people don't know this, but public enemy had disbanded for eight weeks because of anti-Semitic statements that were made by Professor Griff. And they knew that it could hurt Spike Lee's film. And they were pretty much um, 
blocked by their record label Def Jam from going forth with their next album. So everything hinged on the success of Fight the Power and if they didn't fuck up Spike Lee's film, Do the Right Thing. I wrote it on OK Player yesterday. It's blowing up. It's doing crazy numbers on Facebook and Twitter's going crazy. Please read it. If you follow me on Instagram, you already know. I'm Dart underscore Adams everywhere. Oh, and one more thing. Somebody do another review or do some more reviews of me on iTunes. Once you get over 50, different shit happens. And if you want to, like, donate to the site. I haven't had a new sponsor in three weeks because I hit all the CPM marks and all my previous sponsors so they don't know what to do with me. So they're like, we don't want to pay this motherfucker a lot of money. So if you want to go and just like sponsor me, you can do it for like a dollar, whatever, a month. It's like a dollar, two dollars a month or whatever. Just go to the um, to the anchor.fm backslash dart against humanity and just do that. I'm going to run to August 16th. Then the season's going to be over. Episode 60. I'm going to start back up November 1st, 2019. All right, then one.